stay up to date and engage with the financial world. You're listening to the Wall Street Millennial Podcast. With $1.6 trillion in assets, Citigroup is the fourth largest bank in the United States. With 72 million customers in the U.S. alone, it has been a household name for decades. But despite its large size and global brand recognition, Citi has one of the most troubled histories of any major bank operating today. They were hit hard by the 2008 financial crisis, and to this day, their share price is still 90% below its pre-crisis peak. Currently, they have the lowest valuation of any of the major U.S. banks by far, with a price-to-book ratio of just 0.6. That means that investors think the company is worth far less than its liquidation value. And to some extent, Citi is following the market's advice. They are currently in the process of selling or liquidating almost all of their consumer-facing international operations, some of which they have operated for over 20 years. What would eventually become Citigroup was started all the way back in 1812 as the National City Bank of New York. At the time, banking was very primitive, mostly serving as a place for rich people to store their money. Throughout the early 1900s, the City Bank of New York invented many of the things that we take for granted today, including the calculation of compound interest in savings accounts, certificates of deposit, and checking accounts. In the 1970s, they were one of the first banks to roll out automated teller machines on a large scale. Around the same time, they launched the City Credit Card, which became the dominant card within the U.S. They rebranded as Citicorp and became the largest bank in the United States by assets. Having had so much success in their core U.S. banking business, Citi started expanding aggressively into international markets in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They invested heavily in new emerging markets including Russia and China, hoping that their technological leadership in the U.S. would translate well to these new markets. Their most significant air national expansion was their 2001 acquisition of the Mexican banking giant Banamex, which they unimaginatively rebranded as Citi Banamex. By the turn of the millennium, they were not only the largest, but also the most international of the U.S. banks, with operations in over 100 countries. They were perhaps the first ever truly global bank. In 1984, Citi appointed a new CEO named John S. Reed. Reed had a plan to take the bank's expansion to the next level, with what would become the largest merger of financial companies up until that point. In 1998, he announced an all-stock merger of equals between Citigroup and the massive insurance company Travelers Group, with the combined entity being called Citigroup. But why would a bank want to merge with an insurance company? The idea was that Citibank would cross-sell Traveler's insurance products. For example, let's say you go to a city branch to apply for a mortgage. The mortgage officer could try to upsell you on a home insurance policy from Traveler's Group. Given how dominant Citi was in the retail banking industry, this could massively increase Traveler's access to customers. At least that was the idea. The merger with Traveler's Group was a complete failure. As it turns out, people were used to buying insurance from dedicated brokers and didn't trust the idea of buying at a bank branch. But what was perhaps even more problematic were the cultural differences between the two companies. After the merger, former Citigroup CEO John Reed and former Travelers Group CEO Sandy Weil were both named co-CEOs of the new Citigroup. They had drastically different management styles and ideas. Reed was a traditional banker. His main focus was continuing to roll out ATMs and other branch-level innovations, which will improve the customer experience and attract more deposits. He was skeptical of complicated financial engineering and derivatives trading, which was becoming increasingly prominent on Wall Street, and his fears were justified. Ten years later, the exact type of financial engineering that Reed was scared of sent Citi to the brink of bankruptcy, but we'll get into that later. Sandy Weil, on the other hand, was much more adventurous. 
He started his career at the investment bank Bear Stearns, and before becoming CEO of Travelers Group, he had founded his own securities trading firm. Prior to its merger with Citicorp, Travelers Group acquired Solomon Brothers, which was one of the largest investment banks in America at the time. In 2000, just two years after the merger, John Reed was forced out and Weil became the sole CEO. By this point, it was clear that the insurance cross-selling strategy was not working, and Travelers Group became a drag on Citigroup's share price. So in 2001, just three years after the $140 billion merger, Citigroup spun off the insurance business into its own publicly traded entity. While they got rid of the insurance business, they still kept the Solomon Brothers investment banking business, which was rebranded as Citi Global Markets. Citigroup's expansion into investment banking was just in time to benefit from the booming real estate market of the early 2000s. In 2003, Citi appointed a new CEO, Charles Prince. Prince saw the opportunity to build out the trading operations of Citi Global Markets and relied on it to bring in billions of dollars of earnings. One of the ways they did this was to invest in tens of billions of dollars worth of mortgage-backed securities, many of which included subprime loans. Mortgage-backed securities were considered safer than buying individual mortgages, because the risk is spread out amongst many thousands of mortgages. Even if one home forecloses, this is no big deal, because this might only represent one ten-thousandth of the mortgage-backed security. And to reduce the risk even further, they diversified geographically across the United States. This way, they are protected from any regional downturns in real estate prices. Their risk management people created complicated mathematical models. These models show that a catastrophic loss on their mortgage portfolio was all but impossible because their diversification was so great. But they failed to consider the possibility of a nationwide real estate collapse that would cause foreclosure rates to rise across all regions. Throughout the 2000s, cities' growth ambitions in their trading business far outpaced the capacity of their branches to supply deposits. When their deposits weren't enough, they increasingly turned to the commercial paper markets to fuel their mortgage-backed security investments. Commercial paper are short-term loans, usually only lasting a few days or weeks. Citi would borrow commercial paper from other banks or money market funds and use this to fund the growth in their mortgage-backed security portfolio. At the peak, they borrowed over $90 billion of commercial paper. During boom times, this strategy works brilliantly. You can borrow commercial paper at a 2 or 3% interest rate and buy mortgage-backed securities yielding 5 or 6%. When you do this with tens of billions of dollars, the small interest rate spread can be massive. When the real estate crash hit in 2007, banks like Citi that benefited the most from the boom were also hit the hardest from the bust. But it took painfully long for the upper echelons at Citi to realize how dire the situation was becoming. In 2007, fellow investment bank Bear Stearns went bankrupt as a result of their holdings in speculative securities. This triggered Citi to perform an internal risk analysis. They calculated the probability of a similar meltdown in their own balance sheet to be less than 1%. That same year, CEO Charles Prince was quoted as saying as long as the music is playing, you've got to get up and dance, and we're still dancing. He was referring to their leveraged loan business, not the mortgage business. But either way, this shows they had no idea how bad things were about to get. In 2008, the rubber finally hit the road as the housing bubble burst. Let's say you bought a beachfront home for $1 million in 2006. By 2008, the value may have been cut in half to $500,000. As long as your down payment was smaller than this $500,000 loss, you're better off defaulting on the mortgage even if you have the ability to pay for it. Millions of Americans did this calculation and there was a massive wave of foreclosures across the country. Millions more Americans lost their jobs and no longer had the ability to make their monthly payments. This massive real estate crash is something that Citi's quants never even considered as a possibility. Citi reported a $27 billion net loss for the year as they took massive write-downs on their subprime mortgage holdings. 
Remember that Citi borrowed $90 billion of commercial paper to fund its mortgage splurge. These loans were very short-term in nature and needed to be renewed on a monthly or even weekly basis. After the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the cost of this short-term financing exploded as lenders grew concerned about the quality of their mortgages which were held as collateral. Unable to refinance its massive short-term loan liabilities, a bankruptcy looked inevitable and their share price declined by 97%. Given their large-scale and international reach, Citi was far more systematically important to the global economy than even Lehman Brothers. Had Citi been allowed to fail, a 1930s-style Great Depression would be all but guaranteed. This needed to be prevented at any cost. In November of 2008, the U.S. Treasury announced a massive bailout program, which would eventually inject $45 billion into Citi, the largest bailout of any U.S. bank. The Wall Street bailouts were very unpopular among the American public. They were viewed as taxpayer money being siphoned to the fat cat executives who created the crisis in the first place. But the bailouts weren't just free money. In exchange, the U.S. government became Citi's largest shareholder, owning 30% of the company. This massively diluted the existing city shareholders as they were forced to issue new shares to the government almost exactly at the lows. In the following years, Citi started to gradually scale down its operations, selling its mortgage-backed securities as well as diverting some of their business units. Most notable was the $15 billion sale of their wealth management division to Morgan Stanley. In 2010, the U.S. government sold its stake in Citi, making a $12 billion profit. In 2015, Citigroup had deleveraged its balance sheet enough to pass the Federal Reserve's stress test, which allowed it to increase its dividend and start share repurchases. Since 2010, the bank has reported positive net income, which has increased to a record $20 billion in 2021. The only year they made a net loss was in 2017, but that was due to a technical accounting item related to the 2017 Trump tax cuts. Despite this, Citi's share price has substantially underperformed its peers. Since 2010, Citi's stock has only increased by 70%, compared to an almost 300% gain by the XLF Financials ETF. The main reason for this is Citi's low return on equity. Return on equity is net profit divided by book value. This is an important metric for banks, as it is a measure of how effectively they can generate profits from their deposit base. Over the past decade, Citi's return on equity has consistently been about 5% lower than JP Morgan's. The lower return on equity has led investors to punish Citi's share price with a dirt-cheap valuation. As of the most recent quarter, Citi's price to book value was 0.5 compared to 1.2 for JP Morgan. The book value is the value of the bank's assets, which mostly consists of its loan book, minus its liabilities, which mostly consists of deposits. Thus, the fact that Citi trades at a discount to book value means that investors think they are so inefficient that as an operating business, they are worth less than their liquidation value. Part of this is because of their bloated international operations. Despite the divestitures they've made post-financial crisis, today they are still the most international of the major U.S. banks, with operations in over 100 countries. In most of their non-U.S. markets, they are relatively small players with low market share. Whenever a bank opens a subsidiary in a new country, there are significant fixed costs associated with regulatory compliance and other issues. The original rationale for becoming a global bank is that they can help multinational companies seamlessly move money around the world. Let's say you're an international shipping company, and you receive payment from customers all over the world. You want to have a bank like Citi that has operations in all of these countries that can help you pay your workers and sell transactions in any currency at any location. But this does not require having thousands of retail branches spread out across the world, which are very expensive to operate and reduce the group-level return on equity. In 2021, Citi appointed a new CEO, Jane Frazier. Her first priority was to increase the bank's return on equity by divesting their underperforming international businesses. 
She announced their plans to divest their consumer banking businesses in 13 markets, including Australia, China, South Korea, and Russia. This was a shocking move, as they had invested billions of dollars into these markets and had been operating in some of them for more than 20 years. Hopefully, these divestitures will help them by reducing operational complexity and allowing them to refocus on their core U.S. banking business. Citi has one of the most complicated and troubled histories of all the U.S. megabanks, and their mistakes of overly aggressive expansion still plague them to this day. But with their financial crisis problems well into the rearview mirror and a new plan to increase efficiency, it's too early to count them out just yet. You've been listening to the Wall Street Millennial podcast. Don't miss a minute wherever you go. Wall Street Millennial, signing out.